Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So our podcast is called Right and Wrong. Are these your notes? These these are your notes about what we're going to say. What does it say? it would be a good... (laughs) I didn't even get to idea. Maybe I can just ask you the question. (laughs) It's going well. It's going really well. (laughs) Hello and welcome back to the Right and Wrong podcast. I'm Jamie and returning as my co-host is the wonderful Naomi Gibson. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm really pleased to be asked back because it means I wasn't terrible the first time. <laughs> um, so it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, this week's guest. Um, he was offering us a glimpse into a pocket of publishing that we haven't heard much from on the podcast. Um, so please welcome professional freelance editor Paul Martin. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the show. Hi, Naomi. Hi, Jamie. How you doing? Hello. Welcome. Good, thank you. Yeah, so we're just really excited to have you here. And we wondered if you could kick off by explaining explaining what sort of literature that you edit? Sure. Um, that's both a short and long question all at once. Um, anything <laughs> is a short answer. <laughs> My primary experience is education materials, so textbooks and teaching resources for schools. Um, oh, but I also okay. do um, nonfiction and fiction work for independent authors, for trade publishing, so on and so forth. And mm-hmm. I also review battlefield tours and uh, school trips for Edexcel, amongst other things. So I'm well and truly a jack of all trades when it comes to editorial matters. Wow. Goodness, I was about to say, is there anything you don't do? <laughs> <laughs> Maths. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> yeah, good choice, good choice. Um, <laughs> well, that is, um, that's amazing. I get the vibe that history is um, maybe your special- speciality, if I can say it properly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, I'm a history postgraduate, so that is very much my uh, focus if I can get my hands on it. Ah, amazing. So history is obviously quite um, like a broad topic. So is it is there any specific area that you specialize in or just history generally or? Uh, this uh, is quite an amusing question to answer, really. Um, I'm a medieval and early modernist, um, so my favourite subject areas are things like the Tudors and the Wars of the Roses. Um, okay. But ironically, I'm also almost better known, as it were, for working on 20th century history, because that's where a lot of the school curriculum covers. And I've actually had a couple of revision guides published on Nazi Germany and the Cold War. So wow. again, quite a quite a wide range of periods covered. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I see. When you do um, the textbooks, obviously, there needs to be, I mean, hopefully a level of historical accuracy involved. Uh, when you, for those kinds of things, do, do you need to have a very deep knowledge of that sort of subject area or is it the sort of thing where you could research on the go? So it largely depends on the project and the sort of point you're coming into the project uh, as there's various different stages of editing. Um, Things like fact checks take place at different stages and then there's the more developmental editing and then there's spot checks and cross checks of a copy edit. Um, It certainly helps um, and it helps to be able to spot things that 
don't look right. Uh, but unless you're doing a um, systematic fact check, then it's more a sort of sense check. So you don't need to be an expert in the subject area. It's more about picking up on the nuances. So, for example, when you trim things down to a generalization, they can very rapidly become inaccurate. Uh, if, for example, right. you say everyone in Tudor London did this or did that, you know, mm-hmm. you start to look a yeah. bit more foolish. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> yes. the tricks of the trade is to look out for things like that. Um, um, but yeah, at certain levels, there are fact checks, but that's easily easily done by researching on the job. Sure. Wow. Okay. So is that is that your primary job as an editor then to fact check or do you do other kinds of things? So um, I do primarily three different roles. Um, mm-hmm. I do development edits, um, which involves very much early stages working hands-on with the author um, to improve the manuscript and uh, get it as good as it can be and to clearly match the brief as best as it can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's the copy edit and the proofread, um, all of which um, involve different levels. Um, a fact check can be asked for at any of those stages, um, but it's usually a separate process that happens alongside, say, a copy edit or a proofread. Um, So I don't always do a fact check on a project, but if it's something that I've briefed to, then yes, I will do. uh, And I have done on quite a few projects. Ah, Okay. So can we just circle back to that thing where you were talking about um, the brief? So when you were saying you get given a brief, um, so that's presumably from uh, the publisher. Yes, that's right. Or the independent author, depending on who's contacted me. So is it a case where the publisher might... um, go approach an author and ask them to write the book or is it the case where the author will have written the book and approached the publisher so for education publishing it's generally a case of the publisher will get a group of authors together to write a suite of books so for example Mm -hmm. all the history textbooks you need for an age range like GCSE Mm -hmm. Um, so they tend to contract a bunch of authors and get them writing um, as a cooperative Um, for fiction publishing uh, it's generally speaking that the the author will go either through an agent or direct to to a publishing house and get picked up through the uh, the vetting process yes very familiar with the vetting process on the in terms of um, the publishers obviously involved and there's a brief involved to what you're you're writing you're writing books for schools. So, how much do you have to sort of keep an eye on what the exam board changes are sort of? Because I mean, I don't know how frequently those change, but there are obviously big shifts that happen at certain points. Um, how how important is it that you keep an eye on that and then have to like factor these things into the authors and the publishers? I guess. So. Um, I mean, there's several questions wrapped up in one there, really. Um, yes. <laughs> I used to work uh, in a house for um, Pearson, who own Edexcel. So a lot of my oh, work right. was okay. very closely tied to um, the specifications that they published. And those specifications tend to go through roughly a five-year life cycle before they're sort of right. re-vetted. Or if a new government comes in with an agenda, they might make uh, and adapt changes and so forth. So at one stage, I think it was in 2008, there was a new history curriculum. They then tweaked it. So I had to read all the textbooks for 2010. And then again, the following year, because they tweaked it a bit more. And then by the oh, time we wow. finished all the tweaks, it was time for the new spec. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, oh, gosh. So yeah, so government stressful. drives a lot of changes. Um, well, in terms of when you say tweak it, it, is it as in like, are you making minor changes or is it quite big changes? So... 
the major changes normally await the end of the cycle and then come in sort of at the end of the five-stage process if there's right. a, a particular new thing. So, for example, our current GCSEs, uh, one of the big new things is something called the historical environment, which hasn't really existed before. And that's all about studying a specific um subject within history in a specific location so for example okay. medicine specifically on the western front in uh, the world war that kind of thing mm-hmm. oh right okay okay so that is a, that's a sort of whole new set of chapters and, and, and things to go into a book exactly and so they'd yeah. create new resources to cover that or they'd and, and adapt the rest of the resources with any minor changes um, sometimes it's just to make things clearer in the spec or sometimes they change the level of the assessment or how the assessment is broken down into different chunks gosh you must be waiting for their updates with bated breath (laughs) absolutely i mean uh, depending on the project uh, generally speaking the publisher will supply you with copies of the up-to-date specs and if there is a change if it's changing from one spec to another one uh, they'll up they'll give you a list of the uh, changes that have been made and you just make sure that um, all the changes do what they need to do to to reflect the latest version of the spec. So you don't have to necessarily um, be fully up to speed on on every minutiae before the project starts. You'll be brought up to speed quite quickly. But it certainly helps to know the specs inside out, uh, which for LXL and slightly less uh, for AQA I do. Um, Oh, okay. Well, that's got to be helpful. Yeah, I mean, I worked very closely with the endorsement team in LXL, so that's uh, definitely a bonus. Mm. So do you think it varies quite quite um, a lot between exam boards then, between AQA and Dexcel? Because I guess they have other ones like in Wales and Scotland, for example. Yes, uh, there are there are differences between uh, the subject specs uh, across the mm. exam boards, but there are also quite a lot of similarities and crossovers. Um, so, uh, for example, um, Edexcel Nazi Germany starts... Um, pretty much uh, at the end of the the world war so 1918 onwards um and it ends very much um before the second world war starts really mm-hmm. whereas uh, in aqa um they cover from slightly before that in sort of early german history and then they go right through to the end of the second world war okay. oh that's interesting so we're all learning different things yes, <laughs> and it all depends on so each um chunk of a spec they have to sort of way up against the other sections of the spec and the timelines have to be similar. So if you're studying one subject um, rather than another, you're still studying roughly the same sort of time period or the same level of uh, complexity and so on and so forth, which yeah. so studying several different you know, unrelated historical topics can be quite a challenge for the uh, t- people who put the specs together. Mm. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So changing, changing pace a little bit, you said you also do fiction, Yes. Uh, would you say that the 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 school stuff, the textbook stuff, that's much more your bread and butter, or is it more of a sort of fifty fifty? Uh, it is very much uh, my bread and butter. So um, oh. I spent ugh, I don't want to know how many years uh, in house <laughs> <laughs> um, about. Um, probably about 15 or so years in-house, um, which is where I got most of my training uh, as a education-based editor. Um, mm-hmm. So that okay. is very much where my primary expertise is. And since I went freelance in 2017, I've then started breaking out into other forms of editorial as well. I see. So mm. so doing fiction stuff is is newer for you than, yes, than doing the other stuff. But I've always and, been and... an avid reader. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, that's yeah. good. <laughs> so 
interesting question. Um, and I was talking to Naomi about this before because Naomi's experience when she was working with Chicken House on her book uh, is you have like the editing is is done by one person, the copy editing is done by another person. Uh, you know, the, and there's lots of different people working on different parts. Whereas it sounds like with with the stuff that you've been doing, you seem to do it all. Like you you just you break it down into three different parts and then you go at it. Mm. Is that right? No, so I do all the stages, but not necessarily on the same project. Oh, okay. Oh, okay, that makes sense, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, the more pairs of eyes you get on a project, the better, because there's always something that someone misses. Mm. Oh, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. That does make yeah. sense, yeah. So on any given project, is it is it you could do any of those things, but you only ever do one, perhaps two? Only ever is a, a strong term, but yeah, essentially that's right. <laughs> we don't want to make generalizations, right? Yeah, I mean, sometimes uh, publishers and packages just find it convenient to use the same person throughout, particularly if it's yeah, a sense. particularly niche subject or whatever, and they want their expertise. And it is useful to have the familiarity, um, yeah. but it is also, as I say, very useful to have an extra fresh pair of eyes. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. I think I, in an ideal world, you probably want a group of people doing that different kind of roles in the editing process it will pick up on different things absolutely any project that i manage um i will always try and ensure that the development editor copy editor and proofreader are all different people mm-hmm. uh that's that that seems wise um so with the fiction in terms of process how how different is it editing fiction versus editing uh non-fiction textbooks uh, very, uh, is, is the short answer. So uh, a development edit on an education project is quite often very tied to the specification, particularly if it's a, a exam focus, so it's, it's GCSE or A-level, for example. So mm-hmm. you're more or less reading it alongside the specification to make sure that it covers everything. And you're very much okay. thinking about a very narrow sort of age range and a very set criteria of what boxes it needs to tick. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, um, as I'm sure you're, you're aware from your own reading and writing, um, fiction doesn't really have a stringent set of rules in that way. Um, <laughs> basically, uh, the main rules of writing are learn the rules so you can break them. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there are um, a lot of useful guidance and uh, things to think about when you're writing. But for every rule, there's an exception where it works really well to break that rule. Yeah, before you were talking about um, having such a... a, a a stringent brief from the exam board is it ever a case where they haven't approved a textbook or rejected it for any reason so uh i think the first thing i should say in answer to that is i've never had a book rejected (laughs) (laughs) of course not not. (laughs) very embarrassing if if it had happened to give my uh, ties with the exam boards Uh, (laughs) uh, it does happen um Mm -hmm. sometimes publishers try and submit too early um and it's just not polished enough uh, to get through the endorsement. What rarely happens is it gets an out-and-out refusal. What usually happens is they'll come back with, here are all the essential things that need to be fixed for this to be considered, and here's other things that we've spotted or suggestions or whatever to make it better. Right. Um, Because the point of endorsement at the end of the day is to make it as fit for purpose and as good as it can be for the customers that are going to be using it and yeah. to therefore support the uh, you know the exam board and the, uh, the qualification mm-hmm. um, so generally they'll work with the reviewer um, they'll go through that feedback make make the tweaks and then resubmit and then this resubmission will presumably be endorsed and accepted mm-hmm. sometimes they 
either don't or aren't willing to make enough changes or there's simply too many problems within it and it will get rejected Um, but that is quite rare yeah i was gonna say must be must be a rare occurrence that that happens because yeah if the if the tech that's already there I assume they would rather just keep editing it until it's up to up to scratch. Exactly, mm, exactly. Yeah, and they must put in some in, money at that point. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, refusal and endorsement doesn't mean you can't publish it. It just means it won't uh, bear okay. the logo saying this is fit for purpose. And a lot of companies uh, just decide to publish without endorsement because it's uh, just easier okay. in terms of timescales and mm-hmm. uh, work process. That's a little bit concerning. I'm I'm pretty certain most teachers would prefer an endorsed resource than a non-endorsed resource, unless there's a particular publisher that they really favour for whatever reason. Yeah, that oh, makes okay. sense. So the exam sure. board actually holds quite a lot of power then, don't they, um, in this particular line? They work. can do. Um, but, uh, I mean, yes, in terms of control of the spec, um, mm-hmm. but also it's within their interests to support um, third-party publishers publishing for their qualification because more resources means uh, a richer learning experience and therefore a stronger qualification. Ah, so true. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. So you've been doing this for uh, longer than you would care to remember. Uh, <laughs> 19 my years in is... total. <laughs> oh, okay, wow. there it is. <laughs> That's a long time. Yeah. Uh, my question is, all that time ago, what was what was it that the first kind of made you want to do this, or, or how did you sort of find your way into this uh, as a, as a full time career? It's mm. a good question. Um, fortunately, one I do know <laughs> the answer to. <laughs> oh, uh, like many of these stories, uh, which I'm sure you've heard before, it starts with a, a little boy who basically wanted to become an author. Uh, okay. So uh, yeah, there is uh, that element to it. Um, I had uh, I fancied myself as a bit of a poet, and so I've had a, a handful of uh, poems and a short story published in young writers' anthologies before I went to university. Oh, that's amazing! amazing. Uh, thank you. And yeah, when I got to university, um, whilst I was deciding what I wanted to do with my life post academia, um, I did a course on publishing and editing, which was uh, focused very much on how you get a manuscript to an agent and get it published and sort of the editing process you might go through as an author. Mm-hmm. Um, but through that course and desperately thinking, what am I going to do for a living when I can no longer stay in university and uh, and spend my time reading, um, I realized that editing was an obvious answer. Um, so I started looking for editorial work and I was very fortunate in that three months after I finished university, uh, I found uh, a job advert that, uh, accepted me and, uh, started my first job in publishing for a small publishing company called Badger Publishing, uh, That's which great. is, uh, a, a school's publisher who started out publishing or putting together boxes of library books for schools so like the best poetry collection for nine to 11 year olds for example that kind of thing and then they started producing their own teaching resources to go alongside and then they decided to start branching out into textbooks and more teaching materials hired a publisher and six months down the line they hired me as an editor and between the two of us we created about 500 titles in about six years Wow, that's Good impressive! <laughs> yeah, um, you must have been say, busy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was um, it was a fantastic experience because um, what you learn when you go to a, one of the major players is, of course, when you're working for a big publisher, the budgets go up, the scope and size of the projects go up, sure. but your individual role is a lot smaller. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas uh, for Badger, I literally did everything. So um, every school subject more or less we published for both primary and secondary level Mm -hmm. um 
So I was working on a full range of subjects, including um, reading materials for reluctant teen readers. Um, so sort of uh, 30-page novellas, things like that, choose-your-own-adventure mm. books, which is very exciting, uh, as well as the more traditional textbooks and um, teaching materials. Uh, mm-hmm. But then when I changed jobs and started working for a big player, um, I was in a subject team and very much did one role within that subject team and only worked on those subject areas. So, um, yeah, it has its benefits and its drawbacks working for the bigger players compared to the smaller publishers. Wow. Yeah, as I'm sure with with similar things across the kind of whole industry, wherever you're at, um, we've spoken to authors who have published with big publishers versus small, and and it's you know you get a lot. It's, it's more like you get a lot more freedom with some, and you and, but you get a lot more security with others, and it's ups and downs mm-hmm. all the way through. Absolutely. My question for you is: I wasn't entirely familiar with this qualification, uh, but the chartered institute of Ed- editing and proofreading the ciep when did you get that at what point in your along that kind of career run that you just described did you get that and um how important is that to people sort of looking to hire you and also people in within your industry to progress so the ciep is Basically, um, they sort of hold the torch for editorial standards in the freelance world and the publishing world, particularly for the UK. Uh, It's a UK-based body. Um, And most, certainly most of the major publishers, I think, when they're looking for editors, uh, the directory there is a good place to go to. And not only does it list uh, qualified editors with experience who have been vetted by the CIEP, they also run training and so on and so forth. so they're a really good place to go to. They also have sort of suggested rates. So you can get a really good idea of the industry and where you're at within the industry. Uh, and I first um, encountered them really or uh, sought them out when I became a freelancer in 2017. Um, so one of the things I did when I went freelance was to contact them, uh, apply for membership. And when you apply for membership, you go through uh, an application proposal where you there's different different levels of editor that you can aim for. Um, and you have reams of forms to fill in and give them references for and so on and so forth about your experiences so they can see how experienced an editor you are and what sort of level you're at and what skills you can offer. Um, and then uh, you pitch that to them um, and uh, I pitched mine in, um, waited for them to vet it, and they came back to me and said, we think you're actually at this level, which was uh, one higher than I'd applied for, which was lovely. Oh, um, that's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, if you can provide a little bit of extra information on here, there, and the other, we'll be very happy to accept you at this level. So um, oh, I dug out that extra information for them. And uh, so now I am uh, the heady heights of an uh, advanced <laughs> professional. Um, which... And what are, what are the levels within... CIEP? So advanced professional is the top level. Um, you're embarrassingly asking me while I don't have the info in front of me to, <laughs> to get the exact level names. Oh, gee. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's, if I remember rightly, there's four different levels, um, okay. sort of an associate level and then sort of um, a professional level. It's the mm-hmm. level before me. Um, so that's what you applied in as a, a yeah, professional that's right. Yeah. Okay, right. Yeah. And, and the standards are high. So Absolutely, yeah. Anyone listening, looking to get 
go look for a someone you know someone to do freelance if paul's busy uh <laughs> they should go to the this this website they should look for this qualification is would you think that's a, that's a good place to start absolutely yeah accreditation mm-hmm. by ciep is a really solid basis because you know you're getting a professional and if you have any issues you know you've got a body that you can contact and talk to about said issues but oh, i can't brilliant. imagine you yeah, would have that's any helpful. issues with anyone yeah. from there do you find a lot of your clients uh through that portal as well Yes, although it's a funny one because um, I'm terrible at asking my clients, where did you find me? Uh, which I really should do more often. But yes, uh, I've certainly got uh, a, a substantial amount of work from having a directory entry. And mm-hmm. um, the important thing about being an uh, advanced professional is that you get more prominence on their directory um, by the time you get to the So I think that really helps as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's it's been massive, um, and also they they run conferences every year and produce yeah. uh, materials that members can read and encourage you to continue with your CPD. You know, throughout your profession, so you don't just sit on your laurels and you stay up to date with sort of industry practices. Oh, brilliant! Yeah, that is good. Yeah, that's and presumably they do. It's it's editing across all genres mediums styles is it absolutely yes it is and you can search the directory depending on whether you want you know a fiction editor or uh, a specific genre of fiction um we all list on our directory entries the different subject or specialisms that we have and they can be as uh, broad ranging or as um narrow as you, you can imagine uh, or my sort of history specialisms are, are up there on my profile for example whereas others will have specific genres of um, fiction or science fiction or whatever it is that they specialize in mm-hmm. sure sure perfect if you could share some of your wisdoms with uh, <laughs> with us and and the, and the listeners it, editorial is is quite a uh glamorous role a lot of people are trying to get into editorial wherever it may be how would you suggest um people trying to break into that editorial as a career would would start uh their journey so aside from obviously walking into a, a job with a publishing company which is a really easy way of doing it <laughs> um, if you can get the job just take it <laughs> absolutely um there are various places uh, such as the publishing association uh, such mm-hmm. as ciep and others that do courses on proofreading copy editing development editing you name it there are there's, there are courses out them and uh, the ones i've mentioned are particularly highly rated ones and that is a good place to first of all, establish whether you have the right skills and uh, how good you are at, at it and also whether it is something for you. Um, because, of course, the downside of editing is when you read for a living, it means reading for pleasure. It kind of feels a bit like work. Yeah. But if it's a good project, then, you know, it doesn't matter. And I have, <laughs> I, I'm very guilty of describing when I'm feeling flippant my job as reading for pleasure for a living. <laughs> it's obviously a lot more intense than that and a lot more goes into it than that. And you do often end up having to read things in a lot more, in a very different way, in a lot more detail. But uh, sure, uh, yeah. if you if you enjoy reading, it's certainly a good first step. It must be great, though, when you get a, a book that you do genuinely enjoy, like from a fictional point of view. And it's not just, it's almost... Okay, there's a lot to do, but it's it's not quite as much work as you might have to do on something else. Absolutely. I mean, there, there's two joys, really. There's the, the joy of a very good read, uh, and there's the joy of a project that you don't have to do huge amounts because yeah, the essence sure. is already there. Um, it's always a massive challenge, um, boxing 
uh, feedback when you're, you're looking at something that's just unworkable. Um, but we all know about the feedback sandwich, so you know, we all get <laughs> yeah. trained on that one. <laughs> I'm sorry, what's the feedback sandwich? <laughs> so uh, if you're if you're offering constructive criticism, you have to make sure you've got uh, the bun layers of nice comments surrounding <laughs> the, uh, the the less pleasant in this. Uh, uh, this context uh, burger okay. in the middle. <laughs> oh, I see. Oh, okay. Have you never heard of it? I've heard of it called the shit sandwich. <laughs> yes. Oh, <right>. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the middle. Paul was giving us the yeah. nice version. Yeah, he absolutely. Was. He, he was sandwiching the sandwich. That's the PG version. <laughs> <laughs> oh, amazing! Well, that is uh, that's great advice. Anyone listening, hopefully, you can take that on and uh, and um, achieve your dreams of becoming an editor. <laughs> Uh, and that brings us on to the final question, which for the first time ever, Naomi is going to ask. I am so excited to ask this question. <laughs> um, right, Paul. Well, if you were stranded on a desert island, what book would you want to have with you? So in, in order to uh, keep domestic bliss, I should mention Testament of the Stars <laughs> would obviously be my first choice, uh, which is my partner's uh, freshly published debut novel. Yes, However, Alex Beaumont, Testament of the Stars. Go check it out and listen yeah, to definitely. our episode about with her. She was great. It's awesome. <laughs> uh, thank you for that plug. Uh, however, I have picked a slightly more suited to me and to the Desert Island book because not only is this a worthy read that I haven't got round to, and the reason it's my first choice is because I don't think I will ever get round to reading it unless I'm on a desert island, but also <laughs> um, due to the book, I'm pretty certain if there was a shark, I could bop it on the nose with this book. And the shark mess with me again. It is a hefty tome and it is Andrew Marr's A History of the World. Oh, uh, yes. Okay, brilliant. I can confirm it's a hefty tome. <laughs> and I figure I could probably also use it to help getting to a palm tree by standing on it. Yeah, Maybe, yeah, yeah. I mean, it would help for sure. Keep you entertained, help you out physically. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good choice. <laughs> And the, and the brief history of the world, you know, that's, you've got it start to finish. It's all there. Yeah. What more could you want? Absolutely. Imagine that's a no brainer, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a great choice. Um, thank you so much, Paul, for, ha- for coming on. It's been yeah, really, really great you. chatting with you. It's been so interesting. Thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. You've, uh, you've, you've opened our eyes to a whole new world of school boards, uh, textbooks <laughs> and, and, and how it all works. It's so interesting. Definitely. And hopefully I've raised more questions than I've answered. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's always our goal in life, isn't it? Absolutely. But, uh, <laughs> if anyone listening is looking to find out more uh, about Paul or looking to inquire about his services, you can find him on the CIEP forums or on LinkedIn. And if you want to keep up with uh, us on the podcast, you can follow us on Twitter at Right and Wrong UK or on Instagram at Right and Wrong Podcast. You can also find our book lists on bookshop.org, including Naomi's book, Every Line of You, which Yay. you guys should go and get. <laughs> uh, and, and that wraps this up. I want to say a big thank you to Paul for coming and sharing everything with us. Big thank you for, to Naomi for guest hosting this episode. And we will see everyone next time. Thank you. Thank you to you guys. Bye.